Welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, Seeing the World for an Artistic Lens. I'm Josephine Burton. And I'm Rachel Head. And we're back online again, Rachel, a <laughs> moment together in person. We did, we did. It was lovely, but um, you're FaceTime with people every day, whereas I'm just uh, I'm a little home studio. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing to be like so intensively be with people no like you know in that intensive way of being in the room of people it's just it's still I mean like, it's not the first time I've done it since Covid but it still feels phenomenally special well I was in the first day recording that last episode with you and it sort of really made me think you know everybody in this room singing and instruments and amps and acting and it really made me think about when we did the R&D for Dino's Bar two years ago where we had to set up screens in between everybody and like nobody could use the same mic or I was like putting markers on the floor where people could sit measuring out two meters. You were really rigid about you I was gonna say you sat there with the tape measure so you've been very strict with us Rachel but no one got COVID so you it was worth it. Exactly you are welcome. Um, (laughs) so, So we're back um and this episode was going to be a sort of reflection on the Dino's Bar journey specifically with yourself and with Hattie Naylor, who is the writer, the incredible writer of Dino's Bar. And I started thinking about actually just the process of the choices you make when, you, when you're trying to tell a story are really interesting and how to tell a good story sort of narratively and theatrically, I thought would be really interesting to, to touch on. So I guess one of the first questions I wanted to ask is um, why you find storytelling important in, in your work. I mean, it's what you do. It's the company you created. It is at the heart of everything that we do, whether that's, I suppose, musical storytelling or physical storytelling and occasionally with dance. It is at the heart of the work. And the process at Dash is generally that we begin a journey. We go out and we meet people and we listen for amazing stories. And um, we spend, I spend a lot of time listening to people, asking questions, sitting there, absorbing, learning a lot, ideally traveling um, in that way that you can sort of being somewhere where you're not at, completely at your ease. You kind of tend to listen more and be more alert to your ideas and, and more sensitive to your surroundings. Uh, that's my own, my own experience anyway. But like even further back, why did you decide to start a company like that? that focused on that finding these stories and immersing themselves in these stories and then creating work around it. That's not how all theatre companies work or arts companies. Curiosity. (laughs) That's a good reason. I really wanted to understand the world better and uh, listen to people, you know, listen and find ways to understand and then share that understanding with people in creative and interesting ways and stories are the way that we understand and encounter others. So I think that was the journey to Dash. It was an evolution. I mean, it, I created it with Tim, who we who we listened to, Tim Supple, who we've listened to recently on the podcast. And he and I came for different reasons and we formed Dash together and it became an evolving and amorphous organisation for many years before it settled. But the idea was always to go on a journey to understand and then find a way of telling interesting stories and bringing those stories to wider audiences. And this is quite a big question, but what makes a good story for you? I think there's a there's a beautifully fine balance between being um, emotionally moved by something, um, brought to tears, brought to joy, and, and be immersed in something utterly beautiful and something that will touch your soul. And then, for me, something that will that, that will open people's eyes to new ideas. So I really, I really feel that's at the heart of all the work that I do. That I, it's not just about making something that's extraordinarily beautiful, in, 
and moving and touching but I really want to find ways to share new stories and new ideas with people so that to me is a good story finds a, it's the sweet spot between something that's aesthetically pleasing and attractive and something that will um change change people in some way that's the sort of if I could find that balance and then I feel like I've succeeded I like that it's like a lot of theatre can be beautiful but you don't come out with any sort of sense of understanding and I feel like that's something that Dash does it's about understanding the stories you're telling and trying to communicate that to an audience and I think really I mean the thing that's driven me with Dido's Bar is I feel like I understand myself better through encountering Marif's story Marif went on such an extraordinary journey to understand who he was in the context of his journey to Europe as an asylum seeker and he, he understands that better and understands what it is to be European or what it is to live in this world better than than I do as a someone who's a native um, and I feel like I understand myself better through understanding Marif's journey. And I like to think that, like, in some ways, we're holding a, a mirror up to ourselves. The writer you chose to create the text element, and actually all the lyrics as well. Yeah, all of it. Is, is Hattie Naylor. It was just the most fortuitous encounter with her. Having encountered Marif and known I wanted to tell his story, but no, I, known I didn't want to tell his story in a conventional way. And she was up for doing something different with it um, and, uh, and, and going on this journey with Marif and I and in a, in a really playful way. Patty Naylor is an award-winning writer and scriptwriter whom Dash had the good fortune to work with on Dido's Bar. She also teaches scriptwriting, so when I got the chance to talk to her, I asked her about how Dido's Bar sits in the body of her own work, and for some tips and tricks on how to tell a really good story. I was going to ask you, like, how you got into writing, like, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? it's like not an easy call to make it was sort of by accident because I'm uh I really struggled at school I went to a large uh comprehensive and didn't do very well and then dyslexia wasn't diagnosed which is what's sort of wrong with the way I, I read and absorb information um and it's an asset I think when you get older I think there are loads and loads of uh, writers and particularly visual artists that have dyslexia I think it's because it means you have to think about the world in a slightly different way and actually, your relationship with language is quite complicated because it takes you a long time to be able to formulate and understand words, let alone read them and absorb what they really mean. And your cognitive patterns are sort of disrupted by dyslexia, which means then you come in understanding the world in a slightly different way. And I think that's what often makes an artist is somebody that's seeing something from a slightly different angle. So now it's an asset and I wouldn't want to have been, ever have been without it. But it also, I think, when I look over the work that I've done over the years, it's nearly all, as is this project, to do with otherness and people that are out, outside of the norm and people that don't feel they quite fit in, which is also a human condition. I think all of us feel, so many of us feel we don't quite fit into the world. But I think if you have any sort of disability, you always feel that you're slightly out of sync. Um, if I can generalise uh, about about that, I know I certainly do, which means the work then has a pattern. I think every single play I've ever written is to do with somebody outside and not accepted in. And I think that is related to the dyslexia and also my experiences through education, which was to do with dyslexics are often sort of bright and 
and stupid in the room because they sort of they understand one aspect of what's going on, but perhaps not the other aspect. And because education, particularly more more so now, is so rigid, you you fail and fail and fail. So I had absolutely no reason to believe that I could be a writer. So I did painting, which again is quite common amongst dyslexics. I did a visual art degree. And then halfway through the degree, I went to quite a prestigious art college in London. I went to the Slade. Halfway through the degree, I got sort of very frustrated, I think, by the art market and, and what I would need to do if I really wanted to be a professional painter when I finished. And I also realised I wanted to be able to say things and say things specifically, which you can only really do, I would argue, uh, with language, or certainly language helps that if you want to make social comment. So I started doing sort of performance-based live art, if you like, with text within it. And from that, um, I sort of started writing properly. And it was, uh, it very quickly became apparent that that was the art form I was sort of best at, really, I suppose. That's what I carried on doing. So when you say um, writing for you enables you to sort of make social comment, like, how does that feed into your storytelling? Is your work always telling a story that is social commentary? If you're a professional scriptwriter, then a lot of people come to you with ideas. So, you know, Josephine came, Josephine Burton, our director, a wonderful director, came to me with this idea of doing um, uh, a version of the Aeneid. And I'd already done a version for Radio 3, quite a traditional version in many ways. The thing that I think attracted both of us to it, and this also relates to Maruf, who's our, our composer on the project, was that it's to do with Dido and Aeneas, the refugees. So you're immediately talking about people that are outside, and that becomes something that we can then work into a contemporary story and be relevant now. And both of them also escaped across the Mediterranean, which of course has traditionally been a route of escape historically for thousands of years for people. Um, so all of that seemed to blend into that but I don't know if I ever take a project which doesn't have that angle to it and even if it doesn't I find a way of working that in obviously it's quite I think it's you know I think Josephine and I and Ruth are all interested in adapting the Aeneid for the same reason so recently I did a, 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 a children's play for the Polka Theatre um, sort of slightly inspired by The Night Before Christmas, that poem. So a very different project, the project we're doing now. And it was, we. I wanted to do a story about a little girl that's having a bad Christmas because her mum's not there. We never really know why she's not there. And again, it became to do without, uh, it became in the end about outsiders, which of course children do really, really relate to as well. And she, all she ever wanted was a reindeer and she goes to sleep on Christmas Eve and wakes up and there's a, a reindeer, but a reindeer with a real attitude in her flat who is refusing to be part of Santa's sleigh that year because it's fed up of being at the back. So again, it's to do with how you're marginalised. And I suppose it was also uh, sort of in reference to COVID as well, because the mum's not there and we don't know why she isn't. So you, I would find a way always probably, even if you come to me with an idea of, of making sure that, not making sure, but trying to find a way of developing the project in which the excluded or the marginalised in some way are, are are part of that conversation, and and fundamentally, I think plays are about um, the human condition, and we're all trying to explain and look at the human condition from many different different aspects when you're when you're doing a piece of theatre. Anything that helps us understand people more, I would argue makes for a better world and I think that's what a lot of playwrights are trying to do. So for you 
what makes a good story? What are the elements of something that, that make a good story? Uh, certainly in film, you're, I teach film quite a lot, screenwriting, which is slightly different from teaching theatre. In film, you want to depict the sort of classic interpretation of how you write a, good re- a really good film, is that you learn from that film how you transcend, transcend some of the great difficulties in life. And that's probably a rule you could apply to most pieces of really good theatre, that they are arguably, and again, um, this is debatable sort of teaching tools in the broadest sense of the world, word when you're writing a play, I would say. Um, what makes a good story is something also that we don't quite know. So you, you, you try and infuse that story with surprises. You also need to create worlds that have parameters that we believe in. That can be one of the hardest things. You know, Dido's Bar is an example of that. I think what we're trying to achieve in that is sort of as an experimental element within it, which, which is, you know, which makes it a really interesting project um, because you were trying to create two worlds in, in one, one place. You want the audience to believe that we're in a bar, but also believe that you're watching private conversations inside the bar at the same time, and it's immersive. The audience have to buy those two separate wor- worlds. Um, that is sort of, in itself, challenging and surprising. But also inside the drama, you hope you're putting in stories that you don't quite expect, but still in the parameters or the tone um, of what you're in. When I'm teaching um, screenwriting, I use this as an example. So let's say you're watching something like Grimora. You're watching a really gritty um, Italian thriller um, set in the gangster lands of, of, I think it's set in Naples, isn't it? I think Grimora. And then you suddenly have a scene in it in which is an animated fluffy rabbit. Okay, so that's tonally completely um, completely wrong and what that does as a viewer is one it turns it into comedy immediately also also or it turns it into something really surreal and away from the tone and the parameters of the stories that you're trying to tell what we often get wrong when we're telling a story is that we get the tone muddled up so you, you put in something too light when you're doing a very very dark piece of work so to try to balance that is really hard what you don't want is um an unrelentingly dark piece, what you don't want. So even in Macbeth, there's, you know, there's the porter, there's humour within it, and that allows the audience to rest. So even in Bluebeard, which is the darkest play I've ever written, which is about a serial killer, there are three jokes, and I can't tell you how important those jokes are because the audience can suddenly relax for a moment and breathe easy. If it's just dark, you know, one of, that's one of the criticisms of Titus and Donica. It's very difficult to do a really good production of it because it's, it just, it's full on. And I would argue part of the problem with that is there's a sort of lack of, I'm not going to criticise shapes much, I'm going to <laughs> go off on a different track. But um, in order to really excite people with what, with what you're doing, you need to stick inside the parameters of the storytelling, but you also need to have surprises within it as well. And I think that's a really hard balance because you can get surprises wrong and take you tonally out of the, out of the show. So it's all those sorts of ingredients, I think, that make a really good story for me. So, like, obviously... You, you have to stay in the world tonally. But if you're writing a very dark piece, how do you get those lighter moments right? It's really hard, I would say. Uh, and I don't know. You, you can't really know until obviously you've got an audience in front of you anyway. If it's a dark piece, and our Dider's Bar is a relatively dark piece. You have to keep those, those lighter moments very short, I think. 
You also, where you place them in the script are really important. So you place a comedy moment after something really dark. So, and you shift it then, you know, like the, the joke is in a thriller or in a, uh, a horror when everyone's laughing that means something absolutely dreadful is about to happen yes that's how you do it so one of the keys to where you put the humor in is you put it after the darkest darkest moment if you don't want them to stay there so it's probably the, the biggest joke in the play it comes after a really horrific description of Troy if that's not a spoiler um, and because you need something to break to break that but also in that description, you're, you're laying down the, the final tone of the whole play in, in that description of Troy as well. But it is described rather than actually shown again. So you're also doing, you're also setting something up and doing that. To a degree, right the way through the play, any play, I would say you're setting up what's happening next in a sort of, in a subtler way as you possibly can. And again, that's to do with the parameters of the tone and the story that you're telling. And, you know, I hope we've got it right for Dido's bar. Like I say, you can never really know until um, you're in front of it. I know with I've Known the Dogs and Bluebeard, um, both uh, plays of mine, the, the, the jokes are absolutely in the right place. Yeah, absolutely in the right place. And you really, really need them. So the audience can breathe easy just for a moment before you move on, because they're both very, very tragic stories. Um, so with Dido's, you say, you know, stories of great plays help you sort of like transcend those the difficulties of life a bit how does Dido relate to that well I mean you have options isn't it so try, what we Dido and Aeneas is we have depicted it fundamentally as a tragedy of course in the original story Aeneas and his descendants go on to found Rome um, and there isn't I would say well I sort of ruin the ending if I talk about the ending because that's not quite what we've done I think we wanted to as much as possible, show the likely story of what most, a, a huge majority of people seeking asylum experience. And I think that, that that is a decision that I think we both made together. Ideally, you want people to walk out of the room thinking about how hard that journey is when you're trying to move from one culture to another, when you've also watched your, your own civilization completely collapse and how unimaginably hard that is so you you are encouraging people to walk in those people's shoes that's sort of what you're trying to do as much as you can why did Dido's was it that the sort of migrant angle of the story and Maruf's very personal story on that that attracted you to it why why was this an interesting project well, Maruf's story you know, is fascinating also a story of, of, of optimism I'd say as well and I think there's elements inside a Dido's Bar, which reflects that. I think that that idea, that story is fascinating, isn't it? And then when you actually talk to Marif about his journey and his journey across the Turkish mountains to Turkey, which is an incredibly dangerous route in which you were arbitrarily shot at, how could you not want to be part of that story? And also the individual artists who work with Marif and Josephine, you know, they're um, exceptionally um, intelligent and informed and uh, enlightened people to work with. So all of those things are the sort of project that you, you're, uh, is, you know, real privilege to be part of. So people approach you and they're like, I've got this idea, I know what the, the direction I want to go with it, can you write it? And, and I know, like, Josephine was like, I want it to be really collaborative. I want, you know, you to be able to be in the room. I want Maruf to have a lot of, like, input. But mm-hmm. alternative reality, is there another way that you could see this story being told if 
if Josephine hadn't mentioned the Aeneid. Is there another direction that you think you might have gone with it that would have been an interesting way to tell this story as well? Yeah, I guess the, 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 the more obvious route would have been to interview refugees also to have a writer that has actually experienced it herself. So we do have, our, you know, our musician, our composer um, has experienced that. So um, the way, if you were taking it on a different route, then you would, I would suggest that you interview refugees or you have a writer who is a refugee. And, and maybe if you don't have any music, you, you know, you'd find probably a writer that had been through that experience. So, you know, that's another longer debate, isn't it? You know, if writers could, couldn't write about what they hadn't actually experienced, then um, they wouldn't be a single male writer that could write a female role <laughs> in my book. So, so it's quite, that's quite a complicated conversation, I think, um, because obviously you're employed because you bring the skills of being, having been a professional script writer for, in my case, about three decades. So you're bringing those skills into, into the room. Um, or so that's why often writers are brought in with a whole load of verbatim text and they work around that, which I do quite a bit actually. And I work with a with an integrated dis, dis, integrated circus company, so half the company have disability called Extraordinary Bodies. And the last show we did was sort of verbatim uh, with some original text as well. So they bring me in to sort of help construct the story. The problem with the, doing verbatim work is that um, you know people, as I am now, people. <laughs> talk but in a very random way and need to be edited down and so that takes quite a lot of construction you have to be able to construct the drama and you can only do that if you're allowed to edit the verbatim and then we put original text on top of it and that's how we shaped it I've sort of gone up at a random Rachel so I forgot what was the original question you answered it you definitely answered it <laughs> Sorry. it's a fascinating world as well it's a very talented brain and of course when you're writing a play because plays are so much to do with surprise or you hope you want a brain that can do tangent not uh, literal understanding of the world um uh, and yes yeah, so that's so my my rather long uh, answers to any questions might be slightly irritating in an interview but are really useful when you're writing play yeah i bet actually i remember when i came to a workshop that you would that you were doing the thing that really stuck in my head was when we talked about like subversion of expectations or like how to create an interesting story is about looking outside the bounds of what you would expect from somebody good and like heroic and expanding that yeah. and picking different traits for them and seeing where it takes you is that something you teach yes yes it is something i teach so you know examples that you, we were doing a character workshop an example would be you you create a villain um and you create you do in, in this particular workshop you take all the stereotypical aspects of a villain so they'd be you know they wear dark they'd have a skull on their face they'd maybe be running a big business company they'd be powerful they'd maybe have a rottweiler as a, as a pet and you, you pervert it so you make them something like a, somebody that works for a charity um somebody that is humble somebody that's caring somebody that keeps pet budgery guards um, and you turn that person into your villain uh, or somebody that's shy that's a villain all those things and there are villains like that out in the world <laughs> Every, you know because all of us are capable I would argue of nearly anything and um, 
I mean, you know, I mean, as regards um, being good or bad. And of course, one of the other, you know, parts of writing a story is you, is you give people choices. Um, they to make a bad choice or a good choice right the way through the story. That's another sort of key to how you map a, a, a piece of storytelling. And so our charity worker who's humble and shy and has a pet canary um, turns out to be, you know, something really rotten is inside that person, male or female or you know, non-binary, you know, you can really sort of expand it into something, to this incredible character. And if you start with a character like that, right at the top of the drama, you can have a real ball with them. And that's that's how you make exciting characters. So when you say, you know, or you give your characters choice or you need to give characters choice, how much choice does Aeneas have in Dido's? Because in the original text, you could argue, not much. I think he, uh, he doesn't have, he still doesn't have much. He's still completely manipulated and dominated by the goddesses, by Juno and Venus, and manipulated. And again, I think that is a greater reflection. What Venus and Juno really represent in our drama are the people that make decisions or the governments that make decisions. And also, I would argue, uh, how capitalism itself makes decisions, which are really arbitrary. You know, Maruf has got a story in which he was told he, he was in Turkey, I think, for two years trying to, to get asylum. And eventually uh, uh, was in a position where he knew he'd be going. And he was told, I think, six, I think quite a few months, he, he was under the impression he was going to Norway. So started learning Norwegian. And then one day at the centre, um, somebody arrived and says, no, you're going to Finland. That's like mm. a godlike decision. That's just saying, we're going to put you there. No, we're going to just put you over there, actually. We've just decided you're just going over there. And I think the play does reflect that, that Aeneas is sort of just, pushed around and he could make there's one decision or maybe two decisions that he could have changed maybe where he's going but he's just pushed around which is a common experience of, of people seeking asylum where you've got this powers of this non-negotiable power above you quite often a government that isn't listening to you and that it's, it's through whim or deciding that you're not telling the truth of your individual story will just send you back that will never believe that you are you have that you need asylum, that it is your right to have an asylum. Let alone what, what I really think about how people move across borders and how you end up in a country in the first place randomly due to birth. And that's you know, the whole notion of borders is really suspect in my book. So he doesn't have that much choice, but actually that in itself is a choice from you guys is reflective of our system. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't have, interestingly, he doesn't have an original poem either, but he doesn't have much choice, no. And he's almost, I go as far as to say, he's almost unformed as an individual. I mean, I've been reading something called The Ungrateful Refugee, which I would really recommend to anybody um, who's lo looking at the refugee crisis, which is a brilliant, brilliant book. And, um, and it's about, one, it explores this notion of waiting endlessly, like for 10, 15 years in the country, to be accepted in that country and how corrosive that is because one of the things that really does define us uh, or helps us to get through our lives is to have a mission to have something that we really want to do in the world if you put somebody in some place and don't let them move for 15 years then slowly they they will become eroded it's really difficult to survive that if you don't have a notion that your life can really, really begin. And that is something that runs right the way through the play. But also she talks at length about people not being believed and how you have to, how you make a believable story and what is truth in relation to how you write fiction as well. What we think is truthful and what we think is untruthful. 
And in order to be convincing, in order to convince a government that you need asylum, you have to have a story that's watertight that will be believed. Bearing in mind that the way that we put story together in the West is quite different to the way we put stories together in the Middle East. They're constructed differently. The Western narrative, which dominates our understanding of what we think truth is, is suspect. A lot of creative writing courses will tell you, that, you know, I don't believe the story, it doesn't truthful, it doesn't speak to me. And when you, when you apply that to someone's actual life, when they're trying to explain their persecution and why they need to leave the country and why they will be at risk when they go back, if you're not believed, it probably won't happen. And that is an arbitrary decision made by the listener who might not know anything about the culture and country you're from. Horrifying. Yeah, it is horrifying. And I hope we've got elements of that in the show. So the decision... Maroof is a musician, so presumably the decision to include music was something that came straight off the bat. But was gig theatre always the journey there? Was it ever going to be a straight musical? I really wanted to be led what I felt like the story needed to be. That sounds like a pretentious thing to say. We're in the arts. <laughs> I could totally be pretentious. All, I am pretentious all the time. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Well. Um, <laughs> that well was very loaded, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, I didn't go in knowing any of the answers. That's the honest, that's the honest response. I felt that I wanted to... Um, I didn't. I I knew because because I was we were weaving on top the we were sort of intermeshing Maruf's uh, own personal story as a musician and the Aeneid. Uh, one way that we would do that would be to to move away from these epic battles of this kind of classical world into something that would be more music led and uh, where we could sort of think about our warrior as being a sort of sole musician who was the, the sole inheritor of a musical tradition and then showed up in town um, as a performer looking to sort of assimilate in a new world. That was sort of clear fairly swiftly that that was what we needed to do. I don't think I knew the expression gig theatre. I mean, about, along the way, someone said to me, it's a bit like gig theatre and it was sort of an encounter for me and I'm not sure I'm completely enamoured by that as an expression anyway. Uh, the form sort of found itself was because partly because I, I we needed to create this environment where Maruf could be a musician and therefore all the artists that he encountered along the way would ideally also be, live in that world. Be also like Turnus, his great musical rival, would be the local boy. Dido, because she's also a refugee, she'd also she was also going to be a great musical star, so she'd need to be a musician. So we were already starting to think about we've got this kind of cast of characters who are all artists. That's sort of one thing. And then the other sort of the other side of it all is is at Dash since about 2014 we've been creating these immersive worlds. I think it was the combination of me thinking like how do I build um how how do we do this how do we create a piece of theatre for a world and then this encounter with Maruf and thinking actually we need to build an environment where he can be a performer and that was the sort of the meshing of it came together to think about let's create this immersive experience where the audience and the performers are part of the community and our audiences will become complicit in the world that will bring Aeneas and, and Dido to life. And there are many brilliant immersive theatres out there in the world where often you're behind a mask where you're not seen. It's really essential for our show and for the work that we do at Dash that the audiences are as important, as important for the community as the performers. And in fact, today in the rehearsal room, we were like, 
we would we, we've got a couple of dances that we do with the audiences and we were just working out how to bring the audiences in for a dance and enable them to feel comfortable joining joining the performers and dancing around the room that sounds like so much fun I can't wait to be pulled into a, a dance that I'm not sure about the first and then I get into which is very much how all my experiences have been going to dash stuff I'm like I'm not actually I think I probably and then I'm in it and I'm like da 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 <laughs> is it always having a giller yeah in my head it is I've got no rhythm so everyone just doing the same thing. um you mentioned immersive work has become incredibly popular but obviously it has its pitfalls and I think like the way that Dash has grown the immersive worlds that it that it has is organically and with care. And I think that it's quite hard when you don't come at it that way, that long journey, which lots of companies don't or don't haven't had the, you know, the time or experience to and um, have tried to do it and it and there are lots of pitfalls to it. What are the challenges? What have been the challenges of of sort of trying to make this particular world immersive? Oh gosh, there are so many. I mean, I mean, generally enough time with the actors um, and the participants and the volunteers, and in our case, actually the front of house staff and the bar staff, to uh, give them the space to understand how they can. They need to own. The, they need to own the space. They need to uh, be up for having those improvising conversations. Feel relaxed enough to to be comfortable in their own own. You know, in their home which they own to welcome people mm. in and see them and ask the questions. That's one thought. <laughs> I think for me, it's massively about being playful with it. You know, whenever we uh, latitude was a brilliant. Uh, it was a brilliant, brilliant learning experience for us. Latitude festival because we. You just meet so many different kinds of people, and you, you like, you know, people would walk into our dacha and they would be so up for play. I mean, you know, we'd find ourselves half an hour later having a conversation, like a half an hour conversation with people about, you know, the czar, and, and we're up for the ex- the experience of talking to our actors and often like totally blindsiding them with their knowledge. And then other people would come into the thing and just say, oh, well, I heard that. I heard I could get a cup of tea, you know, and, and can I just can't get a quick cup of tea before I go and see something down the road. And um, they didn't want to play at all. And I think as a performer or as a volunteer, I think we you just learn how to meet people in the place where they're comfortable. So sometimes people are really up for having deep and meaningful conversations about politics. And some people just want to just say, do you mind if I just get a cup of tea? And so the playfulness that you with which we tackle that world and we, that you can't be too strict about it is really important and we will bring that into our community that some people will just want to say really sorry I don't I'm really not a refugee I just live down the road and someone gave me a flyer and someone said you should come so I don't know what you're talking about and we will have to cope with that and say great yeah. welcome we're gonna see this brilliant gig fantastic musicians so so there is I think the, the 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 sort of meeting people and hearing them that's a sort of another thing world building and being playful with it so I guess I'm learning all the time still and um, focus is really important. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Has it been difficult, you know, keeping keeping a story sort of like going and and still keeping it playful? That is such a heavy, difficult topic still for a a lot of people to to talk to and and a lot of theatre going communities to engage with. You know, the demographic of people that go to theatre aren't always the people that engage with this with with the with the refugee crisis. Has that been an interesting thing that you've had to deal with? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about it last week uh, because I was working with a fight coordinator and we brought a fight coordinator into the room and there will be some violence in the show. 
so I'd be thinking a lot about how do we how, how do we go to that place we need to go to that place we need to respect those stories and the fight coordinator was unbelievable it was just an extraordinary privilege to see them learning you know where do you slap your thigh in order like in order for it not to be seen you know very brilliant like tricks and trade she was amazing and then I'm also simultaneously working with Aisha on um on uh, like bringing movement into some of the songs and there is one amazing song called Panic Boats which Hattie and Maria have co-written which is the story of uh, Dido and Aeneas sing it and it's the story of their journey to to Europe but it's also the story of many many people's journey across the Mediterranean where the sea is both a place of great salvation for so many people and also just a source of terrible danger you know the threats of literally as we know so well of, of what it is to go in these dinghies across the sea it's a quite a long song. It's quite a beautiful song. It's very physical in some ways. Inside, embedded in the song, there's like storytelling and, and, and amazing rhythms. And I've really been grappling with like how, where to go with that song, like how much to stage it, how much to sort of bring narrative into the movement of, the sh- of that song. And I, I just reached this decision that I just, it would just be wrong, somewhat like disrespectful is not quite the word, but it wouldn't be true to the extraordinary uh, personal experiences of so many people if I simply just found a way to dramatise that. It would just not touch the sheer horror of the experience. We're just singing the song, we're just hearing the lyrics, we're singing the song and we're in that space, but in a much more simple strip that way because I think it's very very hard to touch this material with integrity and authenticity um we're very lucky to have Maruf as part of the piece and actually be performing on stage he, he grounds us and he provides us a bit of a bit of backbone it's very hard to do um, and to do it right and to do it well a huge thank you to Josephine Burton and Hattie Naylor for speaking with me today the book Hattie was discussing was The Ungrateful Refugee by Dina Neary which is a beautiful read. Dido's Bar is open, performing at Royal Docks The Factory until the 14th of October. After that, it goes to Manchester, Leicester, Portsmouth and finishes in Oxford. If you've enjoyed the Dash Arts podcast, please rate and review us. And to play us out today, we have the beautiful song Panic Boats, spoken about by Josephine in the podcast. I'm Rachel Head. Thank you for listening. See